the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And he's here to say good afternoon to you. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Lifeline for this fifth day of February. Been kind of a busy day today, news-wise. You might have heard um, that the president is going to speak tomorrow regarding the acquittal in his impeachment trial. The president tweeted that he'll speak at noon Eastern time from the White House to, quote, discuss our country's victory on the impeachment. The Republican-led Senate voted to acquit President Trump on articles of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress today. The votes, of course, largely fell along party lines, although Utah Republican Mitt Romney voted to convict Trump of abuse of power. So that's the big story. We'll have more for you on this topic tomorrow. It is a romance that began on the small screen, played out in real life for over 28 years. A special guest joins us at the top of the program tonight, Chelsea Noble, who's had roles on popular TV shows including Seinfeld, Cheers, Who's the Boss, Days of Our Lives. And after playing Samantha on Full House, Chelsea joined the cast of the beloved hit television sitcom Growing Pains to play Kate McDonald. Kate, of course, was the love interest and later became the wife of Mike Seaver, played by Kirk Cameron. Well, that on-screen romance continued off-screen, and the couple married in 1991. Chelsea's going to be in the San Francisco Bay Area for a very special event on behalf of our friends at Support Circle that will be coming up Saturday, March the 28th at the Crown Plaza in Foster City. More details on that in a moment. Meanwhile, Chelsea, welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, I, I'm sure you, every every reporter, every interview that you've had down through the years have all asked the question, so let's get the one big obligatory question to which you have the answer well memorized. Uh, when you first went on the set and uh, began playing Kate, uh, did you ever imagine that someday you'd wind up uh, not being just uh, Mike Seaver's wife, but uh, the real Kirk Cameron's wife? No. My goodness, no. I never thought I'd marry an actor from Hollywood. Never. <laughs> I'm from upstate New York. No. I, I, I grew up in upstate New York, in Buffalo, New York, and um, I never imagined I would meet my husband in Los Angeles. Yeah, I still can't believe it. And that's just that sort of it tends to be kind of one of those rules, doesn't it? I mean, our our kids grow up, and we tend to say, you know, you don't really want to follow in the entertainment business. I I know you've kind of grown up around it, but you generally don't want to be in Hollywood or be on the radio, whatever the case might be. And yet, oftentimes, uh, what we think uh, how things should wind up being uh, turns out to be very different than that. My goodness, um, twenty eight years of marriage, and uh, I understand you and Kirk have. Uh, six kids, four of which are adopted. I understand that the the fact that you've decided to adopt 
um, is is a a key really ties into uh, your own personal life story and a tremendous heartbeat that you have for adoption. Without giving away too many details, uh, Chelsea, because I don't want to steal any of your thunder uh, for your visit to the Bay Area on the 28th of March, but give us a little bit of an insight in terms of why you and Kirk decided that adopting, in addition, of course, to having your own uh, biological kids, but why you felt adoption was so important. Okay, yeah, I'd love to tell you that. Um, I was adopted from um, a teenage mom, and my brother was also. Um, So I grew up with one brother, and um, I always knew I was adopted, and my mom told us right from the start, and it was just, I was her gift from God, and she was my gift from God, and um, so I grew up just loving adoption. Um, I, I think I secretly always wanted to adopt my first kids because I wanted them to know that they were my first choice. I didn't say that to Kirk right away. He knew I loved adoption. I just didn't really want to tell him that I wanted to adopt our first one. I kind of wanted to wait and see how he felt. And honestly, he was, when we thought of starting a family, he was the one who said to me, you know, hon, why don't, why don't we think about adopting our first? And um, I don't know that we knew we would adopt four in a row, um, and they were all, all, all of our kids are one year apart. So we adopted Jack, and then a year later, Bella, um, eight months later, Anna, and then the next year, Luke. And then I had Olivia, and then I had Jane. So they were six, that were six and under. And, um, so, you know, it was really an answered prayer for me that Kirk had, um, he had that desire. And it's been the most amazing it's just been the most amazing journey. Uh, I just, I feel like every one of our kids was made to be ours, and I have such a strong bond. People often ask me, um, you know, do you feel differently with your adopted kids and your biological kids? And I said, you know, my first four deliveries were so much easier. They were just a lot easier. <laughs> um, that's about the only difference. Um, no, I, I share something with my adopted kids that's very unique um, that I don't share with my biological kids and vice versa. It doesn't make it more significant. They're all my babies and um, I'm just incredibly in love with all of them. So that was how our family started. We were open to, we said, you know, God, whatever baby you have for us, we are completely open and um, they came boom, 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 four in a row. And, um, And when we had six under six, Kirk wanted to kind of hold there. <laughs> He's like, well, can we just hold it a half dozen? This house is getting a little crazy. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and having them having them sort of stair steps like that, a year apart each, uh, it, it, is, it can be yeah. a challenging from a parenting standpoint. I mean, it it just seems as if you know later on there's there's a constant stream of oh here's another graduation, oh here's another graduation. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it was a lot of fun because we just always had this big group of kids, and it's all I knew as a mom is having a bunch of kids, and um, I love I just, I just love being a mom. And so, uh, but this part, this chapter that we're in right now is actually, it, this is difficult because they're all flying now. Like, boom, boom. My, my oldest got married. My daughter, Bella, right after him is engaged. Um, Luke is off in Missouri in a gap year program. Anna is working for a pro-life organization in Florida um, Springs. My daughter just left Spain. So they're, they're flying off really quickly, too. I can't believe I'm actually here and 
I have one at home. I went from six at home to one at home in one year. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's a, that's that's yeah. a, that's a pretty significant uh, adjustment to make and you know for any of us yes. that that are that are kind of progressing along to this stage in life uh to look back and and have that tremendous sense of gee where did the time go? Uh, I mean it, right. it 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 felt like in the early days uh this is all that you did you were almost overwhelmed time-wise by caring for the family and suddenly you turn around and go wait a minute they're 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 almost all out of the nest. Yeah, where did you go? Yeah, and I, I, you know, people often ask me, "Gosh, are you sad? Is it? I'm so used to seeing you with so many kids, and you know, when you're when you're happy with where they are, and you can just see God leading them, you can just, I just, you feel so thankful that they're on their own two feet and that they're doing things that they love and that they're continuing to learn, and I think you just kind of feel when it's time and um. I'm just I'm just celebrating all the things that they're doing now, and um, it's a, it's also a very exciting time to see them launch out into the world. So. Do you get a sense, of, uh, Chelsea, in particular? And and I've always wondered this because. When we look at the adoption crisis in America, and, and I use that term intentionally because there's such an enormous number of parents that are on a waiting list that for whatever reason, either because they cannot conceive or they've decided to add to their family or uh, they, they just want to adopt because they feel from a ministry standpoint that they can make a difference in a child's life, and yet there are so many parents that cannot adopt because there aren't enough children that are available, and yet, ironically, here we are in this country uh, in the course of all the years since 1973 with Roe versus Wade that we have literally, I'll use the term, it's a harsh one, disposed of millions of children who otherwise would be wanted. Do you get the sense that a big part of adoption has a very strong ministry component to it as well? Oh, my goodness, yes. Yes, I, I, I have, um, for most of my young adult life, I have been praying about being involved in um, Did we lose her there? I think Joel, you might have lost her. So we'll pause on that point. We'll give Joel a chance to uh, ring Chelsea back, and this will be a good place for us to step aside and get you updated on a little bit of traffic. If you tuned in late, Chelsea Cameron is with us today, formerly Chelsea Noble. You know her from her roles on popular TV shows, including Seinfeld, Cheers, Who's the Boss, Days of Our Lives. She ultimately um, joined the cast of Growing Pains, played Kurt Cameron's wife on the screen, and then later, and for the last 28 years, in real life. Chelsea's going to be the keynote speaker at an upcoming event that benefits the support circle. This will be on Saturday, March the 28th, from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., hosted at the Crown Plaza in Foster City. And uh, to get more information about this very special event, you can go online to supportcircle.org forward slash benefit. That's supportcircle.org forward slash benefit. And in fact, you're going to benefit from listening to this program because coming up in a few minutes, we're actually going to be giving away four pairs of tickets to the upcoming event on Saturday, March the 28th, featuring a very special guest, Chelsea Cameron. We'll get back to more of our conversation with Chelsea and we'll tell you more about how you can win those tickets as Lifeline continues. Right now, though, let's uh, head into traffic. Maybe you're in it already. Let's find out why and where from the KFAX Traffic Center. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our special guest tonight, Chelsea Cameron. Chelsea's going to be speaking at a special event on behalf of our friends at Support Circle Clinics. This is their 36th annual benefit luncheon to be held Saturday, March the 28th at 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Crown Plaza in Foster City. That's uh, right there off of Chess Drive and 92 in Foster City. Lots of free parking there. And you can get more information about the event by simply going online. You can uh, do that at supportcircle.org forward slash benefit. That's supportcircle.org forward slash benefit. Chelsea, just before the break, I was asking in in terms of your approach, and obviously this is a very personal issue for you, not only because of the fact that you yourself were adopted as a baby, but you and Kirk have four adopted children. Do you see this as a ministry? And is, is this an important ministry that the church should be perhaps more serious about, in your opinion? Oh, my goodness. Um... It's definitely at the center of God's heart. Um, so, yes, I think the Church should always be very involved in, in this. Um, I, For most of my young adult life, I've prayed about being involved in the pro-life movement, um, mainly to counsel girls who find themselves pregnant, who aren't ready to be moms, who are scared, who don't know what to do to help them understand the amazing gift of adoption um, and to find a way to help them through that whole process. It's, it's also been incredible because um, not only coming full circle with me having adopted children, but now my children have a heart for this ministry. My daughter works for Save the Storks, who um, have mobile units that go around and get uh, ultrasounds all over, college campuses all over, and, and meet the girls with love and compassion, and um, they also counsel towards adoption. My son, Luke, wants to start a nonprofit to help people adopt. Um, m- mo- most of my kids want to adopt kids themselves. So, And Kirk <laughs> is doing a movie with the Kendrick brothers this summer about a young man's journey of adoption and then going on to meet and thank his his uh, biological mom. So God has brought this to our family for great purpose. I know that. I know that our story, I've always prayed that our story would be used, that our testimonies would be used, and um, I am so joyful and excited about being a part of um, the pro-life movement and, and adoption in general. So, um, yes, I, I see it as a huge ministry opportunity, um, and I'm, I'm so excited to come and speak up in your area and uh, anywhere I can to help further this cause. And, you know, these organizations, uh, like Support Circle, that provide quick, free, private pregnancy tests are there to provide support and counseling, and and most importantly, help women in that moment, in that moment of of, of stress and confusion, uh, weren't expecting this, and suddenly here it is, and there's so many um, life-changing potential decisions that need to be made, and, and oftentimes, at least in terms of the way this is promoted by uh, those that are so-called um, uh, pro-choice, which really is no choice at all, uh, it's a rush immediately to set up the appointment, 
have an abortion, be done with it, move on with your life without really fully understanding the totality of the consequences for everyone and every life involved. And so the, the ministry of organizations like Support Circle is so critically important. And and part of your story, and I, well, I'm not going to have ask you this question because I want you to share it uh, with the folks that join us for lunch on the 28th of March, but part of your own personal story is intrinsically tied into ministries and organizations like this. So with that said, let me ask you a final question here tonight, Chelsea, and we appreciate so much you carving out some time to be with us this evening. For people eavesdropping on this conversation, um, why do you feel that they directly should be supportive of organizations like Support Circle, not just in terms of their, their prayerful support or volunteerism, but also financial support? Well, um, like I said, I, this this issue is at the center of God's heart, and I know that every woman, when they find themselves pregnant, they need to be met with love and compassion and understanding that pregnancy is a miracle, not a crisis, and that there are people who can help them make the right choice, to make a choice that they can feel heroic about, that they can give life, and that God can direct that life to a family if it's not their home. And um, I think that all of us, all of us probably know someone who has been in a difficult situation with a pregnancy, um, has been scared, um, not knowing what to do. And um, I, I think it's just our way of of caring for every single life. And, and also think about the heart of the person, the mother, who finds herself pregnant, um, and for us to be there for them, to in a, in a new way, in a more compassionate way, in a way that truly helps them understand the choice of life and adoption. Um, I love what they're doing, and all of these the pregnancy centers um, now they're they're starting to approach the girls with much more, um, I think, love and compassion and understanding. Um, so I would encourage everyone who's listening to this to, I would love to meet you. I would hope you can come to the event. Um, and I, I hope that God stirs your heart to get involved in saving lives and um, being there for mothers to, to make that choice for their babies. And I think, Chelsea, you really hit the nail on the head, and that is that so often women who find themselves in crisis pregnancies and have to work through so many discussions and sort of run through their mind the outcomes of, well, if I do this, then what will happen here? And if I do that, what will happen in another set of circumstances? But almost universally, the one thing that we hear is that women say, you know, all things being equal, aside from the surprise and, 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 and perhaps the father doesn't wish to be in the picture, all of these sort of considerations, uh, not least of which potential impact on life and all of that. So often women say that the one overwhelming reason why they wind up making a decision to terminate a pregnancy is because they have a sense of no support. Nobody will stand with them. They'll be either rejected by family or friends or um, loved ones and feel as if they're going at it alone. And the amazing thing about organizations like Support Circle is that they are there to demonstrate that that's not true, that in fact there are people who are compassionate and care 
wish to be there, wish to stand with them and see them through this process and understand at the end, during initially a a difficult time with difficult decisions can be made, can wind up becoming a tremendous blessing to many, many people. And certainly um, that is borne out in the life of Chelsea directly, as well as that of she and her family and husband Kirk and, uh, and their six kids. Chelsea Cameron speaking at the Support Circle Benefit coming up on Saturday, March the 28th, 10 a.m. at Crown Plaza in Foster City. And to reserve your seats, you can go to supportcircle.org forward slash benefit. That's supportcircle.org forward slash benefit. And for the next four callers, we'll make it easy. Callers one, two, three, and four. We're going to give away two pair of tickets each. Just give the call to 888-367-5329, 888-F-O-R-K-F-A-X. Be callers number one, two, three, or four. That's easy. (laughs) And you'll enjoy a pair of tickets to enjoy a luncheon and a wonderful message brought by Chelsea Cameron. Chelsea, thanks so much for the time. We look forward to seeing you here in, uh, oh, my goodness, a month and a half or so. Uh, Again, uh, that'll be Saturday, March the 28th. Benefit on behalf of Support Circle. Details on the web at supportcircle.org forward slash benefit. 5.30 from KFAX. No benefits to traffic, but at least a benefit in knowing what's going on ahead. Let's find that out right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a topic that, at the level of uh, day-to-day living, I think we're all familiar with, this issue of hope. And I think um, at the core, we all certainly understand and know what hopelessness is. I mean, hopelessness is owing $1,000 to the IRS when you only have 150 bucks in your checking account, right? That's, that's hopelessness. Wanting the promotion at work at the age of 61 when you know you're slowing down and up comes the 30-year-old gangbuster co-worker wanting the same promotion. That can be pretty hopeless. If you're desiring to see your first grandchild when you have been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and your daughter isn't even expecting, that can be pretty hopeless. A devastating 7.2 earthquake hitting the poorest town in the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere killing tens of hundreds of thousands of people, that can be pretty hopeless as well. It's sad but true that oftentimes, even within the church, we have a far better understanding and grasp on what hopelessness is, but don't understand much about what hope is, let alone the notion of being able to pay it forward. Hope Casting is the title of a new book by my guest tonight, Mark Ostreicher. He is partnered with the Youth Cartel. It's an organization that challenges youth ministers through strategic counseling and innovative resource development for youth ministries. He has served as vice president of ministry resources and later as president of Youth Specialties in San Diego, an organization that trains and equips church youth workers. And he's authored or contributed to more than 60 books. And Mark, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Craig. I'm glad to be here. Why is it that we as the church... um, don't really have a good grasp on what hope is. We've got a lot of experience, to be sure, with hopelessness. Uh, but it seems as if a lot of us in the church don't really have a good understanding from a biblical perspective as to what hope is. And oftentimes, I think we, we end up confusing biblical hope with just wishful thinking. Absolutely. I, I, it's exactly why I tried to start to explore this for myself before I 
even started writing the book, I was finding myself in a season of hopelessness from a job loss and uh, all the identity questions that came from that and, and really wrestled with my, I think, immature ideas of what hope is. I just didn't find them sustainable. I feel like we've been, I'd been told so many times that hope was, like you said, wishful thinking. I would say hope was optimism, right? Just put on a happy face and be positive. And I wasn't finding that all that helpful. It wasn't, it wasn't doing anything for me. And, and when I tried to start looking at what other Christians were saying uh, in books and things like that, I looked on the Internet and on Amazon and stuff, and so much of the language of hope was only connected to the afterlife, which is beautiful and wonderful and true, but it wasn't enough to pull me out of bed, right? It wasn't enough to give me fuel of um, kind of encouragement for that given day. It's not like I was in a deep depression, but I was in a tough place. And so I started to really search scripture and found that my understanding of hope was not lining up with the Bible. Yeah. And I think ironically, I mean, that that's something that I think a lot of us certainly struggle with, no matter what stage we happen to be at in our walk with Christ. And I think also we tend to apply, as I think you're suggesting, Mark, a lot of secular definitions to hope that, that kind of seems as if, well, if we if we somewhere in there uh, quote a Bible verse in the process, we've somehow brought it back to the biblical perspective. I mean, for example, it's not unusual for people to say, well, having hope, you know, at the end, it, it, it just makes you the optimist. And then people will say, well, I know so-and-so, he's a natural optimist. Okay, so then uh-huh. define for me an unnatural optimist. And how do you go about adopting the, the sense of optimism that a person has? What is it really based on? And I certainly in reading through your book today uh, drew the conclusion that, well, you know, uh, whether you're an unnatural optimist or a natural one, optimism in and of itself tends to kind of be uh, built on a pretty shallow foundation. Yeah, you know, and I'm not anti-optimism. I would say I am an optimist, and I'd much rather be around a group of optimists than a group of pessimists. So. I'm pro-optimism. It's just not the same thing as biblical hope. And optimism is helpful in little short spurts, but for a lifetime of meaning and purpose, uh, and it's particularly when we're in difficult seasons, we need something more than that, and that's when hope comes into play. What strikes me about the lessons that you that you share in the book, and we're going to get into this deeper uh, after we do a time out here. But what what strikes me is that you 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 show us through the book that the journey to hope is not just a uh, snap your finger and you're there. That in fact the journey to hope takes us through hopelessness. Mm, yes. Hmm. Explain a little bit about that, would you? Because some people say, well, wait a minute, I I don't want to be in hopelessness. I just want to hurry up and quick, get me to hope. (laughs) Maybe the easiest way to to do that is to to start with where this first started to become an awareness for me. And you mentioned in your intro of me when an earthquake hits the poorest country or the poorest city in the Western Hemisphere, and that's where, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, this started to shift for me. Um, I was in the season of hopelessness after losing a job, and just months after that, ended up 
uh, in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, leading a short trip for a group of influential youth workers three weeks after the Haiti earthquake. And I expected to see lots of pain and suffering, and boy, did I, to an extent that I've never experienced it or seen it in my life. What shocked me, and I didn't expect it all, was the deep level of hopefulness that I found in Haitian believers. And I, it was completely unexpected. We were driving down a busy road on our first day in Haiti, having have to drift. We had to drive over from the Dominican because the Port-au-Prince airport was still closed. And we got stopped in traffic, and we saw all this crowd of people up ahead and thought it must be a protest. And several of us jumped out of our little minivan and made our way up to see what was happening. And when I came upon this crowd of about a thousand people still assuming it was a protest, I felt I want to separate from my group and kind of get in the middle of this and try to feel what's going on because I couldn't understand the language. Of course, they're speaking in Haitian Creole. So I pushed my way into the middle of the crowd, and it wasn't until I was in the middle of the crowd that I noticed that all of the people had big smiles on their faces. They weren't, pro- they weren't angry faces of protest. And these two little old Haitian women came up to me, grabbed my hands, and through body language made it clear that I was supposed to start dancing. (laughs) For for an overweight old white guy, it was kind of an awkward moment for me, but it was compelling, and I knew that I needed to give myself to whatever this experience was, and I started hopping around. I noticed they're not yelling, they're singing, and all of these quick realizations came to me. I noticed at the end of the street there was a a band up on a stage, and it suddenly struck me these people are worshiping God, which was completely counter to what I expected. And then I realized these people have experienced more pain in their life than I ever will. Every one of them I came to find have lost people, uh, lost homes, lost jobs, but they have a level of hope that I have never experienced, and that verse that I'd memorized as a child in a Bible memory program from the book of Romans, when Paul says to us, we, uh, we have, I'm just blanking on the verse, we rejoice in our sufferings, that's it, we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering leads us to character, and character leads us to hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. And it, and it just dawned on me, these people know hope because of their sufferings. And in their exile and honest expression of pain to God, Jesus comes and meets them and brings hope to them. That was the revolutionary moment for me. And hopefully it's going to be a, a crystallizing moment for our listeners as well, as we're talking about this issue of, of not just finding and keeping and sharing things unseen, that experience of hope, but uh, sort of playing that hope forward toward others. The book is called Hope Casting. It's authored with us today, Mark Ostriker. We'll take a brief time out. Back with more as Lifeline continues. <laughs> And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation we're visiting today with author Mark Ostriker. We're talking about the issue of hope. His new book is called Hope Casting. And as we've been discussing, oftentimes we have a better handle on what hopelessness is than what true biblical hope looks like. Is hope inextricably, in your opinion, Mark, tied to faith? 
That's a great question. You know, it's interesting you ask that because I have some relatives in my extended family who are excited for me about my book, but are not believers. And as they've started to read this, they've asked the question, so I'm not a Christian. Does that mean that I can't experience hope? And they're kind of pushing a little bit because they (laughs) are wanting to know if I'm writing them off. Uh, But they're also curious, genuinely curious. And I think it's a fascinating question. I have to say, and there's part of me that isn't completely sure about that. I believe that God gives out, through God's gracious love, gives out gifts to people whether they acknowledge God or not. Um, But I do believe that faith plays a particularly important role in our, our understanding or experience of hope, that that role is particularly played out when we face fear. And so what I discovered, Craig, as I started to dig into both the biblical examples of hope, particularly in the book of Isaiah, but I think we see this unfold in lots of stories in the Bible also, and as I dug into what some people way smarter than myself, particularly people like Walter Brueggemann and Jürgen Moltmann, theologians who have written on the topic of hope, What I saw was this pattern that started to emerge, that from a place of exile, we, and we today experience exiles that are maybe not being forced from our native land, but we we experience relational exiles, or a loss of dreams, or our futures, all kinds of different exiles. From that place, if we're able to be honest with ourselves, and honest with God about our dissatisfaction, if we're willing to release control and ask for salvation, then the next thing that happens is this place of fear. As soon as we release control, and in some ways I think the idea of putting on a happy face and using positive thinking is really a control mechanism, right? I'm going to try to control this situation into being positive. And that doesn't deliver hope. So when we release control, at that moment we are often faced with fears. Fears about ourselves, fears about God, and that's where faith really comes into play. So this forced optimism that we see oftentimes, I mean, that's not going to carry us far, because as you're suggesting, that leaves out of the equation, and maybe intentionally so in some cases, the true source of hope, and that is God himself. Absolutely, yes, because, I mean, my suggestion is that we cannot create hope, uh, and we don't see that in the Bible. People don't drum up hope on their own. Uh, instead, hope is a gift that comes with the presence of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that and you so, mention that, because, I, you know, reading the book, uh, and, and I want you to explain this character to listeners, because I think it'll give them a, a point of reference here. You talk about uh, Bobby W. Clark. And it's funny, because when I read that passage, I thought, you know, that reminds me of a lot of people, and I don't want to get in trouble here with some, but I know that I will. There was a season a number of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, when a little booklet came out called The Prayer of Jabez. And there were folks that were just, you know, quoting this right and left, and there was coins that were stamped that had the Prayer of Jabez on it. And, And the more I heard people talk about this, I thought, okay, this is the latest fad, and it is built on a sense of forced optimism. 
And uh, the prayer of Jabez in that context reminded me so much of the character Bobby W. Clark in the book. Put that into context for listeners, would you? Yes, I will. Well, that was a horrible situation. I was a young junior high pastor at a church in Omaha, Nebraska, and our our wonderfully revered and wise and deeply spiritual outreach pastor had this great idea for an evangelistic event, and it was to bring in this motivational speaker who was apparently, I didn't know him, but apparently well-known on the business motivational circuit, and he happened to be a Christian, but most people didn't know that. So the idea was bring in this motivational speaker, have a nice dinner in a hotel banquet room, have this motiva- have our congregation bring their business associates who didn't know Jesus, and then have this guy talk, give some business principles, and then present the gospel. In some ways, it was a I said it was a classic kind of bait and switch, right? We wanted you to come for the business bits and then suddenly we're going to bring the gospel on you. Come for the business and and stay for the altar call. Got it. Exactly, (laughs) and it was done in a horrible way, and I experienced it because even though I didn't have business associates because I worked at the church, my wife did. And so, you know, I guilted my wife into guilting some of her coworkers to come to this thing, and because they were friends with her, they came, and, and it was horrible. So Bobby W. Clark, who I mentioned in the book is not his real name, I... I changed his name because I have no interest in defrauding or de- <laughs> defaming uh, a now-dead motivational speaker, but um, he he had this shtick, Craig, that he used, and I'm kind of, there's part of me that's kind of impressed that anybody who has a signature move, and when they do that move, you think, oh, that's Bobby W. Clark's move. That's kind of impressive, right? So his move was that he would say, Life is wonderful, but when in between is and wonderful, he would kick his leg really high up in the air, which was a little strange and unique to see from a very tall businessman in a suit. Yeah, I mean, if it's the uh, Rockettes, it be- if it's the Rockettes uh, at the Radio City Music Hall, it might be different. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. But that was his thing, and he was known for it. Right? It was his motivational line: "Life is wonderful." High kick. And at this point, I think he came out of retirement to do this event at our church. He was an older guy, and he, I don't think he'd done the high kick in a few years. And he talked business stuff for, I don't know, maybe three minutes, really, really short. And then he went into a just a horribly manipulative, shallow version of the gospel. Uh, and at the end of it, he did his move, but he, he kind of pushed did. He, he hadn't done the high kick in a while, and he said, life is, and then you could tell he was just trying really hard to get this thing to work, and he had to try three times before he finally got the high kick to work, and um, and it was just terrible. The whole thing was um, awkward, and uh, I was embarrassed. My wife was embarrassed, but I think in many ways, what aside from the hackneyed version of the gospel, which really wasn't point of why I included that story in the book, it was, I think that that idea is selling us a lie, and it's a lie that's very prevalent in American culture, and that's that just if you smile, if you grin and bear it, it, then everything will be fine. Like you mentioned, Prayer of Jabez, in the book I mentioned kind of the secular counterpart in some ways, which was the book The Secret, which told everybody, sold by the millions told everybody, if you visualize your positive future 
and believe it and claim it to be true, it will become true. And that kind of thinking, which, of course, we understandably have big reservations about from a spiritual or a theological perspective, but the reality is it just doesn't work. It doesn't provide me with a kind of sustainable hope that comes from the presence of Jesus. Well, moreover, this sense of the power of positive thinking upon which, uh, you know, the careers of Norman Vincent Peale and uh, the guy that used to run uh, Crystal Cathedral, uh, Robert Schuller, and others have have based their entire uh, careers upon, I I think it's interesting because they'll talk about the power of positive thinking, but then if you get them to talk for a while, you come to find out that uh, what they think it takes to have hope actually doesn't arrive until you you find wellness all around. And you have another illustration, even going back to your experience in Haiti, where it's one thing to have hope when all is well going around you, and yet it's an entirely different thing to have hope when everything around you is falling apart. And it's interesting that you note uh, people, and sometimes from our first world perspective, in a third world perspective, we would think this is just a hopeless circumstance. And yet, as you discovered, that group of believers in praise and worship in Haiti following this horribly devastating earthquake, I was down there in November, and believe me, five years later, not much is better. And yet, in the middle of all of that, they found hope. And I guess that's really what you're talking about. It's, it's finding hope in and through those difficult moments, the exile moments. Yeah. And, you know, on a, at a much smaller scale than the Haitian people experienced, I went through this journey myself, and really, the book was very much a result of my own journey, and it was around that time, uh, feeling very kind of lost and wondering what I should do next uh, in my life, how would I both provide for my family, but also where would I find meaning? The job I had had was one of deep meaning, and all of my friendships and everything were connected to it, so all of that was stripped away, and... um, in the midst of that, I went out to the desert. I live in San Diego, California, just down from you, and just east of me over the mountains, about 90 minutes, is, is a big desert, and there's a, a wonderful old couple from my church that have a cabin out there, and I use it sometimes for prayer retreat. So I went out for a whole week to... I was just hoping to meet God. I needed to be silent. I needed to get away from the screaming voices of fear that were in my head, Um, And I went out there, and I did something very interesting. I had a friend encourage me that it would be good to give space to the different strong emotions that I was feeling. And I tend to be fairly reserved and held back about my emotions, which I don't think all that uncommon for men anyhow. Um, And I went out there, and I really gave myself over to a day of anger. And I saw it as a prayer, right? It wasn't just me stomping around and cussing in the desert or something. It was uh, about me being honest about how I was feeling before my God, knowing that God was there with me. So a day of anger and a day of hurt and a day of sadness and, um, and a day of fear and a journal like crazy. And, and then finally a day of joy, which really surprised me because I knew I was going to have that day on the fifth day and I didn't think it was going to be possible. But once I had kind of been honest about all that other stuff, released control, and opened myself up to the presence of God, I found that God, of course God's going to meet me in that space. And with God's presence comes hope. And even on that fifth day in the desert, I experienced a tremendous amount of real joy, and I feel like that was the beginning point. That was the first step 
into uh, some sustainable hope for my future. And it sounds like a big part of that was experiencing honest emotion before God, which sometimes I think we get confused, too. If we're not clear with the Lord about where we're at and how we're feeling in that moment, um, we feel as if, well, that to do so would be sort of maligning or... or um, uh, uh, not being truthful or faithful, rather, to our sense of hope. We'll talk a bit about that as our conversation with Mark Ostreicher. The book, Hope Casting, Finding, Keeping, and Sharing the Things Unseen, continues. <laughs> 